Hello and welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and a home to stories about birds, brought to you by me, Bird Girl, and supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. After months of me looking out for the first signs of spring, the first migrants are finally starting to arrive in the UK. Today, we're going to be talking to Ajay Tagala, who's a ranger in the east of England, and to the RSPB's Lucy Hodson, who you might know as Lucy Lapwing from her amazing lessons on birdsong in the last episode. Ajay and Lucy are here to tell us all about the birds that you can look out for as they arrive. And musician and nature beatboxer Jason Singh is here, and he's interviewing one of the founders of the Afro-Celt sound system about their album Flight, which is all about the movement of both humans and birds. First though, I'm a little overexcited because after weeks of looking for a bird that migrates to my local lake each year, I've finally seen it. I've just been birding, or not even birding, I just stopped on the way back from the shop by Chew Valley Lake on the side of the road and thought I'd do a bit of quick birding while grabbing an ice cream and there, there was a massive flock of sand martin. I tried to count them or at least guesstimate and I think there were maybe around 30 birds. Um, it was brilliant and they were flying all over the place. They flew right over my head. I'm just really excited. It was great and I think I'm fairly sure I also saw a couple of swallows in there which is also really exciting because they're obviously a migration classic they're what a lot of people think of when they think of migration because of the way that they line up on the wires in the autumn so yeah I'm really excited about that and just in general over the past few weeks I can tell that the birds are really working up to breeding season, if I thought that they were active and busy before, that's nothing compared to now. They are perched on every prominent stick above the hedge line and they are all singing their heart out, competing for territory, eating as much food as they physically can. It's very exciting. So after we did the National Nest Box Week episode earlier in the series, I decided to put up a few more nest boxes in the garden. We already had some, so I thought I'd put up some more following the directions that Amir Khan had given me. And I put them up sort of, I think it was all facing north, near food, out of the wind, things like that. And really excitingly, at least one of those nest boxes has been really active. There's been a whole array of blue tits sort of popping in, checking it out, deciding if it's where they want to start their nest. I'm sure it's not just the same couple, I'm sure that we've got loads coming through, but it's right outside the window where I sit, where I work, and I'm really hoping that a pair of blue tits are going to settle in there. So, over the last few weeks, there's a few birds that are starting to return on my patch. The RSPB's Lucy Hodson, also known as Lucy Lapwing, seems to be getting just as excited as I am. I noticed the chiffchaff recently, and chiffchaffs are just busy setting up territory, singing along, singing their name as they do, chiffchaff, chiffchaff. And like all the other birds, they're getting down and busy and starting to, you know, build nests and gather food and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's always amazing to see a migrant bird turning up for the first time each year. So 
In lockdown last year, obviously a lot of our walks and exercise was taken very close to home and I was doing the same route down the same public footpath in the countryside near my home every day. And although you might think that gets quite repetitive, it just had a bit of a beauty to it because every day in nature things change and as the season progresses, you just see all these different things come and go and arrive. And migrant birds are a perfect example of that. So walking down the same footpath, past the same trees and bushes, one day there'd be nothing there, the next day, bam, it's your first white throat of the year and you're like, oh my God, this is so exciting. So it's just really nice that we've kind of come back round to that again and we're seeing what happens. So for example, my first chiff chaff of 2021 was in the exact same tree as my first chiff chaff of 2020. That predictable, just singing away. One of the beautiful things about birds and birding is that you have this kind of calendar in your mind of of which birds are going to turn up first and who's going to turn up last and everybody in between as well. So you never know what else is going to turn up. Anytime you go out for a walk, you could see anything at this time of year. So at the moment, I'm anticipating hearing or seeing my first black cap singing, which although quite a few individuals do overwinter now, I've not seen one for months. So when I get my first black cap, which is a lovely little warbler, that'll be really exciting. Potentially going to see any day now something like my first San Martin. The interesting thing about migration is you can kind of see, as well as this calendar, this map of them travelling as well. So with me being based in the Midlands, I can see reports of what people on the south coast of the UK are seeing. And it's just really exciting to know what's around the corner. So, you know, down south at the moment, people are reporting their first San Martin, swallows, wheat ears. I think even a few ospreys have been seen. There's all sorts of stuff to see. So it's really exciting to see what's going to turn up. Over on the east coast of England is Ajay Tagala, a ranger at the National Trust's Wiccan Fen Reserve. I asked how migration makes him feel. I'm still trying to get my head around it, really, <laughs> because it is such a major thing, isn't it? When you think, I mean, I've seen Arctic tern chicks that have just hatched out of their, their eggs and they're so small and, and so vulnerable looking. And then you know that in a few weeks time, they're gonna be flying so many miles. So it really is a wonder of nature. It's, it's a very magic and very special thing. And it, yeah, it's something that, it, it makes life exciting. You know, living in the UK, you've got the changing seasons. And I always look forward to the changing seasons. And I, I get sad this time of year because we have a lot of wild swans. The, the hooper swans are on my doorstep. And I think, oh no, I, I love you so much and you're going to disappear. You're going to go off and leave. But then, you know, we're going to get the swallows arriving and all the joy of those. So it, it's that constant change which makes life so interesting. And that's what keeps me excited about the wildlife is that it's changing. So, as Ajay said, migration isn't just about birds arriving in the UK. It's also about birds leaving. I'll let Lucy explain. Now, when we do talk about migration, you know, those summer visitors tend to be the birds that spring to mind. So things like your swallows, your swifts, your house martins, those kind of things. And there's a whole gang of birds that choose to come to the UK and Europe to nest every year. And that's because this is the place that provides the best niche for them, the best food opportunities. It's somewhere where they can successfully raise their young. And then when it gets to the back end of the breeding season, they pack up their bags and leave and they'll go back to their wintering grounds. So we are their breeding grounds. Their wintering grounds will be somewhere else. Now that, depending on the species, could be just a little bit somewhere further south in the UK. It could be somewhere further south within Europe. Um, or it could be somewhere as far as Africa or anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, really. There's just some mammoth bird journeys that, that go on out there. 
So those are our summer migrants. Now, when we talk about migrating birds, we mean generally two different gangs of birds. And there's two different kind of peak windows in the UK for migration. Spring is when they arrive, autumn is when they're leaving. But also spring is when some different birds are leaving and autumn is when some different birds are arriving. So we actually have a whole suite of birds that choose to migrate to the UK to spend their winter. So for example, every autumn we get an influx of thrush species. So thrushes that nest and breed within Northern Europe, Scandinavia. So things like the red wing and the field fair. You know, winters are so harsh in Northern Europe that the UK is like a nice sunny vacation for them. So they come to our milder winters to sit and guzzle winter berries here. And there's quite a lot of wetland birds and waterfowl that do this as well. So particularly geese, pink-footed geese are a very obvious one, but other things like barnacle geese and whooper swans and buick swans will come and spend the winter here in the UK. So there's two different reasons to migrate, if that makes sense. Some birds are coming in the winter to escape a harsher winter and some birds are coming in the summer to have somewhere nice to breed and raise their young. And it's not just the warmer temperatures that draw the birds in the spring. There's actually longer sunlight hours in the UK, so more time for feeding. And, and when you're raising young, that just gives a few extra hours of the day to be catching insects and bringing them to your youngsters. And that can make a real difference, having that extra time. But it's a good climate as well. It, it's, uh, you know, it's good for insects here because uh, it is, it's a short summer and it's a wet summer. Uh, quite often <laughs> and I mean obviously if you go to Scotland and see all the midges I mean that just that really you know highlights that and also yeah in, in Africa there's lots of dangerous creatures that could predate birds and of course we have them here in the UK as well but perhaps there's less so uh, I think those are the two driving forces that, that bring them here. It's a big commitment to fly all that way. Swallows for example travel to and from South Africa each year a journey of around 6,000 miles. They fatten themselves up before they set off and then take to the skies and cover around 200 miles a day, flying along at 35 miles an hour. Swifts, which arrive later, travel five to 6,000 miles from Southern Africa and fly nearly three times as fast as the swallows, covering 500 to 600 miles a day. But one of the longest journeys made is by the Arctic Turn. They only weigh about 100 grams and uh, their round trip, their migration from, it can be even further south than South Africa, up to almost the Arctic Circle, obviously the name Arctic Turn. So you're talking a round trip that can be more than 18,000 miles in a year. So it's an amazing journey, but also, yeah, now out in the fens where I am now, it's about that time of year when you hear the first common turn, that Kirik call. So for me, they tick a lot of boxes in terms of something to get excited about. And then even willow warblers as well, that, that are um, a passerine, much smaller. They weigh less than nine grams and they can make a migration of about 5,000 miles, which I worked out is something like from London to Edinburgh and back six times. <laughs> Those are some long journeys to do without Google Maps. I asked Lucy how they find their way. So birds use a few different tools to migrate and some of them are ones that we have as humans that we use to, to navigate and wear around. So, you know, if we visit a pub in a city we've never been in before and we visit again a couple of years later, you might be able to find your way back depending on how good your navigation skills are. But we use things like visual clues, landmarks and that kind of thing, sense of direction. Birds very much use that. So they will use landmarks in the landscape. You know, if you think of them flying up, they've got a really good aerial view and a map 
from their vantage point. They recognise coastlines, they recognise mountains and geographical features and human built elements within the landscape as well. So, you know, church spires, that kind of thing they would be likely to use. As well as that, it's proven that they use the sun as a compass. So they can orientate themselves according to which way the sun is and they even like factor in the changing kind of daylight length and stuff as the seasons change and they also have an ability to sense magnetic fields around them so this is called magnetoreception and they're able to kind of visualize in a way the magnetic fields so it's almost like an inbuilt birdie compass to make sure they're heading in the right direction and that means that a lot of birds will return back to the exact same spot that they fledged from and nesting pairs will migrate separate to each other the male and the female won't be migrating at the same time but they'll both meet again at the exact same nest spot and a really good example of that is ospreys amazing bird of prey that eats fish and they are extremely pair faithful they'll nest again and again for years on end a male and a female and they meet again at the nest site every year just amazing to think they've both made this phenomenal journey of thousands of miles and meet back at the exact same spot that just blows my mind So what else can we look forward to, Lucy? So the wonderful thing about migration and migrating birds is that so many different sorts of birds migrate. It's not restricted to one particular gang. So when you think of a migrating bird, people tend to immediately think of the swallow. Um, And one swallow does not a summer make, as the saying goes. Um, And they're perhaps one of our most familiar kind of summer returners. People really understand and they get that swallows migrate. But there's so many other birds that do it as well. Perhaps some less obvious ones, so birds of prey can migrate. Things like the hobby, which is a gorgeous bird that looks a little bit like a smaller, slightly more delicate peregrine falcon. It's got those um, very similar facial markings. It's got a silhouette like a giant swift. Um, They're amazing aerial flyers, and they've got these gorgeous red pantaloons as well. And they come back here in the summer and basically live on a diet of mostly dragonflies. They're amazing. And yeah, hobbies migrate. Who knows that? So the wonderful thing about migrants is that you can generally spot a migrating species whichever habitat you're having a nosy about in. So if you're going for a walk in the countryside in some farmland, you might see birds like the cuckoo or turtle doves or nightingales, things like that. If you go to a woodland habitat, we've got some gorgeous woodland migrants. So if you go to a high quality ancient woodland, you'll find birds like pied flycatchers, like red starts, maybe even wood warblers which are gorgeous little brownie yellow jobbies but they have this beautiful song and they've, they're one of the fastest declining birds in Britain breeding here but they do still return here to breed if you go to some kind of heathland open habitat you'll get amazing birds things like night jars which are almost alien like and if you go out at night you can hear them cheering in the dark and other birds like tree pipits which just have gorgeous wonderful songs and even if you go to the coast you know a lot of seabirds migrate so if you go to you know a cliff roosting colony of of seabirds there's you know the familiar puffins they might not go on a mammoth journey out to you know down to africa but once they've finished breeding on the sea cliffs they'll spend the rest of the year in the bitter northern hemisphere winter out at sea just bobbing along not you know touching land or touching base it's absolutely fascinating so no matter where you go you can encounter migrating birds and even very close to home so in urban and suburban areas one of the most iconic birds one of the most easy to see and recognisable migrants is the swift and that is so wrapped up in British folklore and culture. Now swifts are incredible, they're aerial masters and although they might not be the most colourful thing ever, they're just, they've got so much going for them. They 
They're like a sooty, blacky-brown colour, and when they're in flight, their silhouette is like a crescent moon boomerang. And they hold the crown title of the bird that has the fastest flight in level flight. So, although we all know the peregrine falcon is the fastest bird in the world, clocks 200 miles an hour when it stoops, it's been helped along a little bit by gravity. It's not all of its own accord. Swifts are power in themselves, and at level flight can achieve nearly 70 miles an hour. It's ridiculous. They are just aerial masters and they spend all of their winter in Africa and then they come back to the UK to breed and they'll often nest in nooks and crannies in our roofs. So they're incredible birds that you can see very close to home. Best way to spot them is to keep an ear out because they form these little gangs called screaming parties and when it gets to dusk they'll all swoop down at roof height down your street and just make an absolute racket. This really high-pitched noise like which is a terrible impression but um the first time you hear that in spring when they return end of april start of may it's just the most joyful noise in the world now with migration happening all around us we've been asking you to tell us what you've been seeing first let's go up to orkney where george gay is an assistant warden at the north ronaldsea bird observatory north ronaldsea is the most northerly of the orkney islands so it's ideally situated for bird migration sort of to our north we've obviously got shetland and fair isle our south is the rest of the Orkney Islands, so we do sit in a prime location to pick up birds as they head back sort of onto the continent, sort of through to Norway and places like that. And on the reverse, as things begin to leave the continent and head south for sort of warmer climbs over the winter. At the end of the day, we're, we're all waiting for the same stuff to come through. Up here, it just sometimes takes a little bit longer. You know, the birds that are now arriving on the south coast of England, sort of through Cornwall and places like that and Dorset. Some of those will stay where they are and they will breed there, but some of them will begin to track north where they'll also breed. It just takes a little bit longer. You know, we always sort of say up here that we're, we're always two or three weeks behind. There's other things that people probably don't think about that are arriving here at the moment as well. You know, things like robin and dunnock. You know, they don't, they don't stay in the same place every year. The, the robin that you see in your garden every weekend is perhaps not the same one that's there in the spring. They do move about a lot. Um, away from sort of breeding stuff, we're always keeping our eyes out for those things that are a little bit special. Last year we had a green warbler, which was a seventh for Britain. And you know, and then on, on the flip side, the autumn migration, while juveniles disperse, can turn up pretty much anything. You know, you just never know what can turn up on these sort of northern outposts weather has a big factor on these things as well you know a bit of early morning rain after a sort of fairly clear night means stuff will have left wherever it was and if it arrives here around sort of four or five o'clock in the morning and it hits a band of rain it will come down you know it doesn't want to get soaked just like us and it will then sort of spend the day feeding again you know things like robins dunnocks will hit these showers and bands around and will be forced to stop and you'll see them come in and just pitch down you know migration isn't a sort of small undertaking for these birds and they're often desperate when they get here you can sometimes sit doing sea watches and things and see red wings coming in off the sea and, you know sometimes they don't make it sometimes they miss land by a hundred foot it can be a bit galling but it's all part of what they do you know it's a very sort of harsh reality of sort of migration and things like that Next, let's meet Zara Vauder. She's a writer and photographer who explores our connections with the environment, and she works to challenge eco-stereotypes and highlight the beauty of the nature we can see around us every day. 
Hi, my name is Zahra Vauda. I'm sitting right now by my balcony in East London. I've just seen something really exciting. So we often get some really nice bird life and bird action from this spot. So we get some really close views of pigeons nesting. We've got the crow family across the road. We've got the wagtails and the gulls and the odd kestrel that will fly by. But what I've just seen right now, which is so exciting because it's such a sign of spring, is my first starling of the year. And this isn't the first starling I've seen in the year because starlings are, some of them are resident birds in the UK, so they'll stay here all year round. But some starlings do travel, so they'll migrate from the northern Europe uh, and they'll come to the UK for winter because it's meant to be a bit more milder here. And during summer, they'll usually go back. And so they migrate um, through autumn and through spring. And what I've just seen now, my first starling from my balcony, that is them moving through. So every spring, we have a group of starlings that pass through. Um, and pass by my building so we'll get to see them from the balcony and they only stay for a few weeks but when they're here they start to sing especially during sunset and it's so beautiful because they sing these intricate like incredible songs while sitting on the roof right below my balcony so you can really see the details and their feathers and just the details of like how they move when they sing these songs and it looks so effortless because they just open a little little beak and this amazing sound comes out and they usually start singing during the sunset time so the sunset the setting sun is lighting up all of these colors and their feathers and the spots and really making them stand out it's really special to see because you see starlings often in the parks and, you know, fields, but to see them so closely like this and to know that they're on this journey going somewhere, um, even if it's not all that way to Northern Europe, even if it is a shorter distance of just staying in the UK, but just moving around, like it's just, it's incredible to think that they're going on this journey and they still have this energy inside them. They're not big birds at all, but... And the way they sing, it looks so effortless, but yeah, it's, it's just really special to see. That was Zara Valda, and you can read more about her relationship with nature in the Willow Herb Review. The coming and going of birds is something that's been celebrated throughout human history, but for a long time, where they went and why was a mystery. So migration has been one of those things that in the past, in human folklore, we really did not understand it. You know, if you think about back then, we had no technology. The fact that all these birds that we become very familiar with in the summer just suddenly disappear. People just did not understand why this happened. And there were all sorts of funny theories as to where they went and what they did. One of them was that some birds transform into other birds. So they turn into a different bird in the winter. And a really good example of that is that people thought red starts, which are a woodland bird, beautiful things, that they turned into robins in winter. Which, you know, red starts have a red chest. Robins, famously red-breasted robins, you can see the kind of relationship between those. Another theory was that birds hibernated. 
and a favourite one of mine that I like to talk about is the fact that people used to think that swallows and other birds like swallows, so swifts, would hibernate in the mud at the bottom of ponds and rivers and I think it was all around one single case that somebody found a dead one in some mud and thought, ah, this makes sense. So lots of people thought that these birds very secretly hibernated somewhere and we didn't know where. And it was only until people started really kind of travelling around the world and people would be on ships and report huge clouds of swallows travelling in a general direction that they started to think, hey, maybe they go somewhere else in the winter. And obviously as time went on, people started doing things like, there were some quite cruel practices before we got into modern technology, but I believe people used to clip off toes of birds to try and track the same individual again and again, which added to our understanding of migration and movement. And then eventually the practice that we still use today of ringing or banding, depending what you call it, where you put a tiny little coloured or metal ring on a bird's leg with an identification number. And you can basically, if you catch that bird again somewhere else, you know where it's come from. So it's really helpful data. The people who put these rings on birds' legs are bird ringers. Ben Dolan is a policeman who rings birds in the West Midlands in his spare time. I think ringed in them as a chick, just wandering around, can't even fly. Ring them as a chick and then you get sightings of them in Spain, France, a lot of them in Ireland. Yeah, it's just incredible, really. The big ones for me was um, a new site at Seven Trent. So we've got a site called Minworth um, that Seven Trent look after and it's one of their biggest sites. And they just kind of put a mass of sand somewhere in the, you know, a, a point within the site and kind of left it. And when I was looking around the site, I found that there was a sand martin colony there. Just a pile of sand somewhere. It's, it, it's not that they've put there for that purpose, although now they maintain it for that. And I caught a bird there and it, it was from Spain, you know, middle of Spain. And I thought, well, how amazing is that? These, these birds have come back to the UK and, and all the way from Spain has been ringed and come back to the UK to breed. And, and I've caught it in a pile of sand that's been left in the middle of nowhere, really. And then I've had a garden warbler at Marsh Lane Nature Reserve, which I look after, and that was from Spain again. Um, the nature reserves absolutely love it because especially Marsh Lane, for instance, is a site in the middle of pretty much Birmingham and it's a stone's throw from Birmingham Airport. So when we have oyster catcher breeding there, you know, where do they go? Which way do they go? So colouring in those has been really good because we've had recoveries in France, Spain, across the UK um, of these birds. So it, it, it's showing where our inland kind of waders and gulls are, are moving out to. And I think the, one of the interesting things about the gulls is out of 600 we've ringed, only one has ever gone east. Not that I could say why particularly, but <laughs> the others have gone south or southwest or, you know, west uh, a lot of them gone into ireland a lot of them go to south england southern england and then some go across the continent into france spain and portugal so it's interesting for the landowners i love it as well because you know you think well actually how far have they moved and i find it really good engagement as well with the public the general public who are interested and actually it's getting them a little bit more interested because they're like oh my gosh you know that's how far they've moved, especially when you put like a map up as well. How, you know, that little bird that weighs 15 grams has travelled from, you know, middle of Birmingham over to Spain. I don't blame it because I'd prefer to live in Spain myself, but, you know, it's where it's travelled to. And yeah, and I think it's, 
it's just really interesting and actually why have they come to you and then with the forestry work we do is if they don't return back to that area when they have previous years well why haven't they come back is it the habitat is it disturbance and actually it allows us to understand a wider really area of that so why haven't they come back West Midlands Ringing Group has been working with Seven Trent on conservation. We've worked with Seven Trent for a number of years now and they're just a fantastic company that are really keen to improve things. And they have some really important habitat uh, and it's quite unbelievable really. And we did a Year of the Owl last year. And what we wanted to do is just survey each site for owls in and around because they're either surrounded by farmland or they're surrounded by heavy industrial areas. So they're almost become a haven to wildlife, you know, so and they're very secure. So we've we've got barn owls breeding on sites, we've had short-eared owls on there, long-eared owls, we've got little owls, tawny barn owls. So the habitat on there has just been incredible. So and they're always keen to improve things. So the San Martin Bank that I was talking about, it collapses quite regular with the winter coming. So they always prepare it for the following time that they turn up. So not only are they interested, but the staff are getting more interested because they understand what's there and how important it is. So, yeah, because sometimes landowners don't realise how important their habitat is. And actually, when you get to survey it and help them understand better, then they can make changes for the better, you know, and, and help all birds, really. Bird ringing is a really simple way of tracking birds that's taught us all about the routes that birds migrate across the world. It also teaches us the impact loss of habitat is having and the effects of climate change on bird populations. It is quite lo-fi though because it relies on the goodwill and the work of other birders to spot and log the rings around the world. GPS trackers are becoming small and cheap enough that they can be fitted to some birds and it's teaching us about the mysterious migration of a bird with a very recognisable sound. The cuckoo. They're one of Ajay's favourite birds at Wiccan Fen and he's been loving looking at cuckoo tracking online. For many years we didn't know exactly where cuckoos were spending the winter. We saw them here in the summertime, we knew that they migrated to the Africa area. But through a satellite tagging project, we've been able to find out that they go, and many of them have gone to the Congo specifically, which we didn't know that's where they went. And so through this satellite tagging, which basically involves putting a, a small tag on the bird that transmits their location, we've been able to basically follow their every move on the, on the course of that migration. So they're spending the winter in Africa, and then crossing the Sahara to get to us in the UK to spend the summer. Well, they're only here really for a relatively short time, the adults. The BTO, or British Trust for Ornithology, has trackers attached to three birds. They're called Valentine, PJ and Carlton II. If you search for the BTO cuckoo tracking project online, you can see a map of the exact routes each of them has migrated. The cuckoo is one of Lucy Lapwing's favourite birds to listen out for. Cuckoos are incredible, so they are nest parasites, brood parasites, so a male and a female will pair up and mate, and then the female will spend her time skulking around, stalking other birds, often meadow pipits or birds like dunnocks, wait for the dunnock to leave their nest unguarded, and then she'll drop straight in there and lay an egg, and hopefully 
the egg will be adopted by the dunnock and bingo, a dunnock somehow accidentally raised a baby cuckoo. <laughs> so cuckoos are only here for a very short period because they don't need to stick around to raise any young. So once they've dumped a few eggs, that's it, they can go back to Africa and they spend winter in the Congo. Now, the way to get a really good look at the birds we've been talking about is with binoculars. If you're thinking about buying your first pair, you might be wondering how to choose from all the different shapes and sizes. Those shapes and sizes tend to relate to two key numbers. You usually get binoculars that are 8 by 32 or 10 by 42. I asked Dale Forbes from Swarovski Optic to explain what they mean and how to choose the right pair for you. So the first number is the magnification. The more common numbers you see are eight times or 10 times. And that's how many times closer you are to the bird or to the squirrel mm. or whatever you're watching. And so the larger the number, the closer you appear. The second number is the glass in the front of the binoculars. And it's how big that is in millimeters. But you, you spoke about that 42. And so the 42 was the, the size of the glass in the front of the binoculars. And that, mm. that makes the real difference to the bulk of the binoculars. And so if you're then going for something like 50 or 56, those are going to be much heavier binoculars. But it can have its advantages if you spend lots of time out at night, where mm. the more light you're getting in, the more light you can get out. And so it's easier to see things at night. I think you touched on something really important there, which is obviously that you need different types of binoculars depending on what you're doing with them. If you're like hiking through the Alps, looking for like birds sat on the top of the mountains, you need a completely different type of binoculars compared to if you're mainly using them to look at the birds in your garden. Yeah, you need to be choosing the binoculars that best suit you. But mm. if you tend to live in forests or woodlands, birds tend to be a little bit closer, then I would tend to go for an eight power, an eight times magnification. And that's because they have a wider field of view. You have more of the landscape in the binocular mm. and that makes it easier to find the birds, particularly if this is your first pair of binoculars or if the birds just tend to be moving fast in a place fairly close, then that wider field of view is really useful. The other advantage of an eight times is that they're more stable. They're also a little bit brighter in the twilight. On the other hand, if you tend to live in open habitats, in wide open fields or semi-deserts, that's where a 10 times could bring more benefits because birds tend to be a little bit further away and you can see the birds a little bit larger. And if you're looking to do some relatively low level birding, like you want it to be local in your local woodland and your garden, do you think there's anything else we should talk about except the magnification that's important for that type of birding in particular? I would always suggest to people to buy the binoculars that they feel they'll have with them most of the time. Mm -hmm. Because the most useful pair of binoculars are the ones you've got with you when you see something. Mm -hmm. And so what isn't useful is to then have a super fancy huge pair of binoculars that you tend to leave at home when you go for your walk in the park. Because... Mm -hmm. They're not doing you any good at home. Binoculars are there to be used to experience wildlife. You want to have them when the robin pops out and is singing. You want to have them when you're watching wildlife. So choose a pair of binoculars that you feel you'll always have with you. 
I know I've taken my binoculars literally everywhere with me in the last year. Like whenever I hop out to the shops, I'm taking my binoculars with me because you never know when something exciting is going to turn up. But do you think like one pair of binoculars is able to be shared by a family or uh, adult binoculars not very good for kids? Well, I, I think that there are lots of binoculars that don't really work for smaller children's faces. That's because the eyepieces don't go close enough together. And so it's definitely something you'd want to try out with your children just to see that they are able to see through both eyepieces. The other thing that's that I would tend to look at is uh, how easy the children are able to move the focusing wheel. I remember when, when I was a small child, we had binoculars, but the focusing wheel was really tight. And so I actually didn't have the finger strength to be able to focus them. So I had to take the binoculars off of my eyes and then focus them and then be able to look again. Obviously, a lot of people actually struggle to use binoculars when they first go bird watching. I know my parents always used to give me little tricks to help me actually find the birds that I was trying to look at through my binoculars. But do you have any tips for people who are using them for the first time? Yeah, so one of the tricks that I use and I try to show people is that if you see a bird that you want to look at through binoculars, focus your eyes on that bird and don't move your head at all. Don't move your eyes, don't move your head and lift the binoculars to your eyes. And mm. many people, when they're first lifting up their binoculars, would tend to move their head forward. As soon as you're moving your head, it's harder to find that bird. And so keep the head steady, the eyes trained on the bird, and you're just moving the binoculars in the way of where that bird is, and then you can focus. And that will help you find the bird. The other thing that's, that will make it easier is if you've got a slightly lower magnification. And so if you've got an eight times, it'll be easier to find that bird because you can see more of the landscape. Is there anything else that you think is really important for people to know about binoculars? Enjoy them and use them. The more you use them, the more birds you can see, the more you, enjoyment you get out of them. Even if it's just a more common bird in your garden, and you've seen it a hundred times or a thousand times or 10,000 times through binoculars, look at it again. There's always something cool to discover on a goldfinch, how it's moving or the colors are gorgeous. Use mm. binoculars. I think that's amazing advice. I think that's the perfect way to end this. Thank you so much for giving us a hand, helping people pick out their binoculars. It was really lovely to speak with you today. So thank you. Let's talk more to RJ now. We've heard about some of the birds that migrate to the Wiccan Fen Reserve where he works, but what about some of the resident species? So we've got some characteristic reed bed species, and they're some of the things that really excited me when I was younger. And we're talking about marsh harriers and bitterns in particular. They're two key species. Uh, the bittern in particular is very elusive, of course. I call it the holy grail, really, the, the bittern in the reed bed, because that's not something you're going to see every day. But if, if you're lucky enough, because we're out working, you can spend a long time looking for things. And I have done sat in a hide and, and been rewarded eventually but being out on the reserve just in the course of our daily duties, sometimes something will fly overhead. And if it is a bitten, that's, that's a good day. Or a marsh harrier is just fantastic because a lot of people come and marsh harriers on the top of their list of a bird to see. Because across the whole UK, they are fairly rare, of course. I'm privileged to see them on a regular basis, but I never lose sight of the fact that they're special birds and I'm, I'm lucky to see them regularly. So I always pause and, and take in that sight of them flying overhead. Yeah, I mean, those are two 
fantastic birds. I live near a lake that's got lots of reeds. I know that there are lots of bitterns in there. I see them maybe once every few months at the most. For people who don't know very much about bitterns, could you tell people a little bit about them? Yeah, of course. So bitterns, uh, they're in the heron family, but they're, they're a smaller browner bird. And uh, they were in real trouble not so long ago. They were, they were almost extinct. Well, they were extinct for a while. And uh, thanks to RSPB-led management of reed beds and creating more habitat for them and lots of research, we've been able to create a space for them and enable them to really, really make a comeback. And uh, they they live their lives, well, they, they breed in, in reed beds. And um, so they're quite elusive in that respect. They're very secretive birds. And uh, they're, they're kind of one of the wildlife success stories of the recent years, really, in that it was a bird on the brink that, that has made a comeback. But sometimes you, you can go to places like the Somerset Levels or, or Minsmere is a great place, and, and there might be an individual that is hanging out and being particularly showy. But uh, they, they are very secretive, and so they are very special when you see them, and knowing that backstory. And uh, similarly now um, we're seeing cranes are another bird that I really enjoy seeing. And I see those more than bitterns now. And how did you get into nature and the outdoors in the first place? Well, it, it started on the local river where I grew up. And uh, I'd just go and watch the ducks with my family, basically. And uh, I just got interested in what the different species were. And then I remember seeing a, a heron probably for the first time and just being struck by the size of it because you've got the small ducks and this uh, amazingly huge looking bird to a small child. And there was a place near us called Peacock near Peterborough. And they had a wildfowl collection there. And I was just fascinated by all the different species and looking through my parents' bird book. And I just had this dream that I'd see all these species one day. And so that's where it started from. And then as a teenager, I, uh, I got into volunteering and I volunteered with some wardens and realised that these were people that they were happy on a Monday morning. They enjoyed their jobs. And also they had that chance to make a difference and to really help wildlife, which was something I was really passionate about as well. So that's where it started for me. And each episode, we ask the person we're talking to to pick out a bird to watch. So basically, a bird that they think that people should be keeping an eye out over the next few weeks. And as birds are starting to arrive, starting to migrate, I wondered if you could pick out a bird for people to watch out for. All right, um, I'll pick, I think I'll go for a house martin. It's not going to be too long before they start appearing. And they're great because uh, they feed on insects and uh, you'll see them often in the evenings and, and they come into quite close contact with people as well because the name House Martin, uh, they nest on the sides of houses quite often. So uh, they're going to be returning soon and that would be the bird that I'd say keep an eye out for. Wonderful black and white bird, the House Martin. Okay, I have to ask because I always ask everyone, if you were a bird, what bird would you be? Gosh, what a question. <laughs> Well, thinking about our conversation, um, I quite like the idea of being uh, elusive and being uh, distinctive in, in the sounds that I could make. So to be a bitten, to be something, uh, you know, as, as uh, held in such high regard as a bitten, that sense of mystery. And for me, I like spending a lot of time near reed beds anyway, to, to hide away in one and make my life there. I think I'd be quite happy as a bitten. That is not a bad choice. I would love to spend my days making their amazing booming sound. In fact, Jason Singh probably already does. Our very own nature beatboxer and music expert is back with another story of music influenced by birdsong. 
For today's story, Jason is getting to know the Afro-Celt sound system, a band that have sold over a million and a half albums, and they've been making records with musicians from around the world for 25 years. Their latest album is called Flight, and it's all about migration, by both birds and by humans. We're going to hear stories from a few of the band. First, let's meet Simon Emerson. Birding for me is not about being an expert. It's about the pure immersion in nature and sound. I'm quite happy being a bad birder. Simon's a music legend who's made punk, was there at the start of the acid jazz scene, and has worked with Sade, Everything But The Girl, and Femi Kuti. Here he is chatting to Jason Singh. I, I've been birding since I've been a kid, so I, my gang was came from this kind of South London estate, and it was a big estate, and we went to Wandsworth Comprehensive School, which is closed, and that was a very, very, very tough school. It, um, you know, the first skinheads in London went there. There was a, a terrible stabbing when I was a kid, and our solace was going on to Wimbledon Common, and we 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 became avid bird watchers. I mean, serious. You know, we were in the young, young ornitholo- ornithological club, and we found lesser spotted woodpeckers, and we found red starts, and we would spend, um, we would get up at dawn at weekends and go down, walk across the common, walk over to Richmond Park. Um, and it was all very, very magical and mythical, and there were stories of golden orioles, you know, that had been seen, and there was a great northern diver and pen ponds that had been seen back in the 50s. I mean, all this stuff that birders talk about. And it became, if you like, it became my church. And in those days, um, bird song, you know, the dawn chorus was deafening. You know, you'd get up in the morning and you'd walk across, you know, through a council estate and the birds would be singing and then you'd cross the road, uh, Inner Park Road, into Wimbledon Common and, and the bird song would be amazing. And in fact, we, uh, my brother kept a record of for two years of all the birds that were singing, you know, the first birds, you know, that you start with the blackbird at half past four and we found woodcock and snipe and every time I go back to Wimbledon Common and me and my mates, we do this kind of pilgrimage and we do this walk and it's just amazing and that was me reconnecting with nature and bird watching was part of that and it's just brilliant that so many people are doing it now because i can tell you you know you'd get you get your head kicked in <laughs> if you if you told people you were a bird watcher when i was a kid it was not something that you it was something that you kept very very um secret you know because it wasn't kind you know it wasn't part of the kind of you know, working class, Mako culture, you know. Um, so so these days it's just brilliant, you know, and it's just everywhere. What does it mean to you when birds start to arrive on migration? It's always been the way I... Um, it means a lot to me, that's what it means, you know, it means a lot. Um, as the season changes, you expect different birds and, you know, of course, migration time, you can get a rarity turning up, you know, right in the middle of London. I remember when the hobbies started coming in in springtime. So it's autumn, you know, migration is always a very, uh, the, you know, spring and autumn is always very exciting for rarities. I guess the quietest time is August, you know, August and August, it goes very, very quiet and still. And I don't know where the birds go, and <laughs> I really don't. It just, you know, the woods around here, everything stops, you know, but, you know 
but um, you know, in winter we'd go down to the reservoirs, and I managed to get in, which I shouldn't have done, and there was a flock of smew right in the middle of Hackney. I mean, amazing, you know. Wicked. What advice would you give to someone listening to the podcast who's interested in getting out into nature, listening to birdsong? What kind of tips or advice could you give somebody? You, you don't have to live in the countryside. I mean, when I was a kid, there were black red stars, you know. It was like that was a bird, the, the rarest bird in London. And I, I um, in the 80s, uh, I was living on a council estate in King's Cross, um, overlooking the station. And um, this black red start turned up one day on our balcony, you know. And there's more and more urban bird life now. You know, there's a wetland centre in Barnes. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to bunk into that, you know. it was We used to climb under the fence to see if we could see the green sandpipers and all that, you know, and got chased out. Well, in fact, we didn't get chased out because the, the warden, got we, he got to knew us and it was like, all right, all, all right, lads, you know, just half an hour and then up it, you know. See, I love I loved this, just the way that you're talking about it. It's just in that terms of being in an urban environment from the city, going into scenarios where you're bunking off to go and listen to birdsong. I know, it was an obsession. It was... It's wicked. It, no, it, it was great and... Um, you know, um, you just need to keep looking up. I mean, when I lived in Hackney, I used to go and see Leighton Orient play, and, and, and they were my team, and they were, they were really rubbish. And there was a particularly bad match. And then that week, there'd been a, an influx of honey buzzards, and they were all flying up the Lee Valley. And I looked up, and there were these honey buzzards flying over. And I got the whole crowd, well, not the whole crowd, all these people had, look up there, there's a honey buzzard. And there was another one, and we counted six, you know. <laughs> That's wicked. You just look up. That is so wicked. Yeah. So, I wanted to kind of ask, what is Afro-Celt Sound System? Well, originally, it was a collective that came out of my work in Senegal in the early 90s. I was over there in 91. At that point, I was just a London musician. I was DJing a bit. Giles Peterson was my lodger. So I was part of that North London emergent acid jazz, jazz funk scene in Hackney and South London, doing all the clubs. And I found myself in Senegal working with Baba Mal and I kind of had an epiphany. He sang this ancestral song that had a very profound effect on me and I heard music that referred back to the ancient music of Ireland and the British Isles. I couldn't put my finger on it and when I was back in London at the Strong Room mixing it, I invited Davy Spillane along to the studio who is one of the top Irish Illan Piper, the Irish pipes and whistle player. And he heard it and he grabbed hold of me and he said, you've got some deep stuff here, Simon. You know, we've always known there, there was a, a connection between the Celts and African music and you have to pursue this. And that was the kind of start of uh, planting a seed that grew and grew and grew. And I put a collective together of musicians from Ireland and from Baba Marl's band and we made the first album which I thought was destined to be one of those very obscure, worthy albums that would kind of appear 20 years later in the file under obscure and worthy <laughs> section of uh, record shops. And then suddenly it just took off and we were playing at festivals on main stages across Europe. 
we ended up selling one and a half million albums we got two grammy nominations and we had a massive hit record in america it was a extraordinary story and i think certainly in america but i think these days the afrocults are very much a household name yeah and that relationship between migration of birds and what you're doing with afrocult sound system and, and the music especially the album flight can you talk a bit about that, just in terms of how you might see the connections between migration of people and migration of animals? There are so many parallels between the fact music thrives without borders, you know, especially the Afrocelts, you know, where we're a pan-European band that crosses over into Africa and music is kind of common language that thrives with the free movement of people. Hi, this is Johnny Kelsey from the Afrocelt Sound System. What bird migration means to me is basically it's a reminder of my ancestral past. It's a reminder of how my grandparents left India for East Africa looking for prospects of better work, better lifestyle for education for, for their kids to grow up in. My parents were born in Africa and as was my entire family. They went to British schools, they spoke Swahili and English. At home they spoke Punjabi. And then in 1967 they had to leave and they boarded a boat and came to England and they settled in Leeds where I was born. Every time there's a bird migration or you hear of migration happening, when birds are flocking for prospects of food, prospects of raising their young, they'll always go to what seems a better place and, and uh, a climate that's going to be suitable. It's a sheer reminder that migration is almost similar to what we've endured and what my family's endured. Recording flight, I remember listening to Sanctus and the choir that was singing on it was just incredible sound. Um, a wall of voices that was just commanding attention and you just had to stop and listen. It was just amazing. Flight was uh, one of those albums that took its own energy from each individual that actually worked on the album. What the band does inherently, and we've always done, is we've kind of passed the baton. So somebody would start with a drum groove on a sampler. I would then hand that over to someone else, Robbie, who would play a Bowron groove, and then the Farley would do a choral or, or put a vocal chant over it. And by the time it gets handed around, by the time it's migrated amongst all the band, you then get a track that's greater than the sum of its parts, which I think is a practical, living, breathing example about how multiculturalism works. I'm Fali Kuyate from Guinea-Kanakri, West Africa. I am one of the leaders of Afrocals. I play Gora Balafon. I sing and I write. 
Before the border in the world, the human had the possibility to travel everywhere. And we see every time the African bird can fly to come in Europe and go to ASEAN and everywhere they are free to fly because the world is they. The thing for me is travel is just reserved for some continents to be free to fly everywhere in the world, to, to travel in the, everywhere in the world, to go everywhere with their passports, free and no problem. But some other people of the other continent can't, and that's very sad. And for me, if the border has deleted, the people can come and go back again. That's very important. That means the sound of Afro-Celts. Before the nation-states had happened, before the imperial armies of the Romans had taken over, there could have been trade links going down the west coast of Ireland all the way down to Senegal, on the tip of Dakar. People would have traded, they would have exchanged goods, and then they would have played music. They, knew they would have got out barons and talking drums and sung. That's the kind of common language that people would have shared then. There's so many examples of how music and the free movement of people have a synergy. Have you ever incorporated birdsong into your recordings, into your compositions? Well, ha! <laughs> We're just doing one now, and it's called Hawk Owl, and it uses... the Haw Hawk Owl's got an incredible call. And now this, this is a work-in-progress mix of Hawk Owl. Now this is very, very early days, so what you're hearing is like a template, a track, that we're now sending around the band uh, and you'll hear the hawk owl singing at the beginning. One thing that I would say about Flight is it was our first real studio album and I wanted to record an album where we all got together in the studio and played as one. So the Migration Medley is the first time we've actually played together as a band in the studio, you know, drums and bass, which is extraordinary if you think about it. So that kind of migration, that sense of, you know, the songs evolving, I think came out of the flow of playing live in the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the the thing is for me is when I listen when I listen to the album and I listen to the people who are involved in it. For me, there is that very nature of migration and flight within within those people. Some of them who I know personally, but also knowing from their cultural backgrounds that that movement and 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 is part of the people that they're from. I'm really glad you got that because you know the migration medley. I mean, for me, it's one of the most ambitious things we've ever done. It was incredibly hard to compose. I mean, Rina, when she sang on flight, she did this backing vocal and it, and it just sounded like a bird flying. You know, she does something with her voice which, which does capture the spirit and essence of a song. 
Migration Medley is the hardest track I've co-written. So it's music to my ears, you saying? <laughs> Jason Singh talking to Simon Emerson, and we heard from fellow Afro-Celts Farley Kuyate and Johnny Kelsey. Please let us know what you thought of that and all our stories on social media. Find us at Get Birding Pod. I'm Maya Rose Craig, also known as Bird Girl, and Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production, supported by Seven Trent Water and Swarovski Optic. Next time, we're looking ahead to when we can travel again and talking about how you can take your birding to the next level in new locations. Happy birding! Bye!